Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Hey, Pastor Doug uh, had a little, and his family had a little trip uh, this week, and they intended to be, he intended to be back uh, by today uh, to share that message with you that he's been promoting. But unfortunately, the Lord had a different plan, and he needed to stay there a little bit longer. And so I'm here with you today to share God's word, and so uh, I'm grateful for that. Listen, I know there's a few faces in the room that I really don't know yet still. So if you don't know me, my name is Lance Browley. I'm one of the pastors here. And so we're going to be getting into God's word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. So if you want to prepare for that, let's start moving our hearts and our minds towards God's word. So all of Christianity, all of Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection all of Christianity, Christianity, G, Christianity rises and falls. All of life, all of history even, rises and falls on the resurrection. It's, it's like a, a eternity hinges on the resurrection. And it hinges on the day that Jesus took his first breath in the tomb. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 14 tells us this. It said, if Christ had not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. And then later it says in verse 17, it says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. Right? And so listen, if that were the case too, by the way, you're still in your sin. And if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then this message, our message, is powerless, our faith is useless, and our salvation is worthless. Right? All of Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. Now, listen, if the resurrection, if it has changed history, the question is, has it changed you? And if it's changed you, you, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be starting in verse 16. And so open up your Bibles to that. Now, most of all, chapter 28 is about the resurrection. And Pastor Doug is going to be preaching on that in a couple of weeks for Easter. And in fact, by the way, those cards that are in your seats are, are for you to give away. Uh, you can... Uh, invite somebody to Easter that weekend. We have a Friday uh, event, uh, and then a Saturday, and then a Sunday services. So we, we would encourage you to give that to somebody. Invite your family, friends, coworkers, whomever, and invite them for that weekend. But listen, here's the spoiler alert about Easter. Jesus did resurrect from the grave. Amen? He is alive, and because he is, we're going to talk about the Great Commission. This is about what we're supposed to do in our everyday lives, wherever we live, work, and play. These 94 words of this chapter is called the Great Commission. And these final verses here in this, in this book of Matthew, I think, are the entire point of the entire Bible, in my opinion. And I think it's the most important, one, some of the most important words that are within it. 
Well, we have a tradition here that before we get started, that Pastor Doug started, and uh, we want to do that. We love it to do it, and we want to honor that. And it's about this Bible and the, what we believe about it. And so if you believe as we do, if you'll raise your Bibles and say it like you mean it, say it with me. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. These five verses tell us about the, the I think, the greatest commitment speech uh, that the world has ever known. And we know it as the Great Commission. Now, there's a Barna study that was done just this last year. I don't know if you can see that, but uh, it's a Barna study that was done in 2022. And uh, it said that 51% of Christians, okay, 51% of Christians have never heard of the Great Commission. I know that's not you guys, right? Because y'all know. But another 25% say that they've heard of it, but they're not really sure what it's really all about. And so if you fall into those categories, then we're going to be talking about that today, okay? And really, here's the thing. These are 94 words, and I think in it, Jesus gives us the purpose the life purpose for every believer, every believer. All right. So Jesus's mission, if you agree with me on this, I want you to say amen. Jesus's mission was to seek and save the lost. Right. We agree with that. And if he was sent to earth and we are his co-laborers, right? We're, we're his co-fellow workers. And so we share that same mission, Right. That's why we call it the co-mission, right? Jesus said in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So here's the main idea today. Every believer is called to be an everyday missionary wherever you live, work, and play. Every believer if is a disciple and you are called to be a missionary. But if you want to start, we got to start looking at the fallacies that are going to keep you from, from, you know, b- being a part and living that out in your life. Now, the first one, I call this the great confusion. The re- great confusion. There's a professor at, of preaching at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. His name is Jim Shaddix. He said this. He said, there's a danger that the Great Commission could become the Great Confusion. I would suggest that it's not a matter of could, but that it's already happening in many churches today. And we're confusing the Great Commission with what I would call the Great Functioning, uh, the, the Functioning Great Commission, which is to go into all the world, make more worship attenders, Baptizing them in the name of your family and friends, teaching them to serve one hour a week, maybe in like a community group. The functioning Great Commission. And what I have found is there's so many churches that they dedicate a great deal of the majority of their time 
and their resources fulfilling this and miss the great commission that Jesus said was to go into all the world and make disciples. Now, the second fallacy that I want to share with you is called the great suggestion, right? The great suggestion. People understand that the great commission is really just a suggestion, right? But Jesus did not say, you know, if you feel like it, right? He said, he didn't say, if you're too busy, if you're not too busy, you know, could you do a personal favor for me and, and, and maybe go share, you know, with other people about me, right? He didn't say that. See, it's not a request, it's a command, right? And there's this third fallacy I want you to, to see, and perhaps I think it's the greatest obstacle here. It's the great deflection, the great deflection. That same Barna study uh, that found that 51% don't know the Great Commission. So really over half of U.S. Christians believe that missions is a calling only for some. Right? Like, I'll deflect that on someone else. Right? Or, and, and, or within that same, it says, one out of every four Christians say that missions is not a mandate for all. Right. So clearly the Great Commission is becoming the great deflection. I heard a story this past week uh, about a pastor that had a debilitating disease. And this disease would slowly paralyze his body. Uh, and one day it would uh, the, it would, you know, paralyze him. And sadly, and it would uh, cause him to pass when the paralysis would take over. But there was this Easter Sunday, and the paralysis did take over his vocal cords, and he was not able to preach. And, 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 but he did have enough strength to, to, to write a note, to, to give a message that he wrote down. And this is what he said, what he wrote. How horrible on Easter Sunday to have a voice, to have no voice to shout, He is risen. But far worse is to have a voice and not want to shout, he is risen. Right? Guys, you have a voice. Are you using it? You're either intentionally fulfilling the great commission or you are unintentionally fulfilling the great deflection. Let me say that again. You're either intentionally fulfilling the great commission or you're unintentionally fulfilling the great deflection. There's no gray area here, guys. There's no gray area. Either you're living in mission or you're not. It's not the great confusion. It's not the great suggestion. It's not the great deflection. It's the great commission. And our text today gives, gives us three essentials to help us live this out. Okay. The first one is this. It's the authority of our king. Okay. The authority of our king. Look at verse 18. It's the dynamic of his authority. The dynamic of his authority. All, he, he said, all authority has been given to me. Now your version might say all power. So which one is it? Right? Is it, is it all authority or is it all power? Right? It's both. 
Yes. Both and. Right. And I, and listen, I, I know that there are some uh, I think there's some law enforcement officers here. I don't think that they drive police cars anymore, but I don't know. Uh, but listen, if you were an officer, you have the authority to stop, a, say, a speeding semi. Right. And you exercise that authority by blue flashing lights. Right. But if if you were to try to stand in front of that semi, you would quickly realize that you don't have that kind of power. Right. But Jesus, however, he has that kind of authority and he has that kind of power. Right. He, he has both. He has all authority and he has all power. Now, look, the, the word authority comes from the Greek word exosia. And it means this ability, force, capacity, competency, freedom, mastery, token of control, delicated influence. It means all of those things and more. Do you know what the Greek word for all means? It means all. Right? All. It just, not just a little, not just a lot, not even most. It means all. All power and all authority, which makes him the king of kings, right? Amen? I love this. Daniel, listen to this. Daniel 4.37, it says he's the king of heaven. Matthew 22 says he's the king of the Jews. John 1.49 says he's the king of Israel. 1 Timothy 1.17 says he's the king of the ages. Psalm 24.7 says he's the king of glory. Revelation 15.3 says he's the king of the saints. Revelation 19.16 says he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And I say he is my king. Who do you say he is? This is the dynamic of his authority. Now notice how he says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So what does that tell us about his authority? First off, it tells us a few things. It's matchless. It's matchless. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His authority is matchless authority. Secondly, it's endless authority. Endless authority. Daniel seven fourteen says this. And to him was given a given dominion and glory in the kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's an endless it's an endless authority. And thirdly, it's a limitless authority. Colossians 1:16 says this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and by him and for him. He is before all things, and by his hand he is holding all things together. Amen? 
So the dimension, this is the dimension of his authority. So what is it? It's matchless. It's endless. And it's limitless. The third aspect I want you to see is the devotion of his authority. So right there in verse 19, it says, go therefore. So what does that mean? It means his authority demands a response. Right? His authority demands obedience. It made me think of the rich young ruler. Uh, he, he so desperately wanted to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, he, he told Jesus, he said, tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus goes, well, you need to do this, this, and this. And, and he says, well, I've done all of that. He says, okay, well, go sell everything then and give it to the poor. Well, he wanted to be a follower of Jesus, but he refused when he found out what it would cost him. He wanted to accept Jesus as Savior, but he refused to accept him as Lord. Did you catch that? The Bible speaks of nothing of accepting and confessing Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. His authority, his lordship of your life, of your life, it demands obedience. So when he says go, guess what we say? Where? Right? We go. Listen, we are not called to wait for the lost to come to the church, but instead we take the church to the lost. That's you and me, by the way. That's you and me. That's our mission. Right? And if we do this, Pastor Billy Graham says this. He says, we have to leave our laziness, forsake our fears, put down our prejudice, and eliminate our excuses. As Christians, I think we do have a lot of excuses. What I hear a lot is, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. It's what I hear too often. Uh, and it's true that we do, ha- you know, we don't have enough time to do everything that we, you know, we want to do. But we do have enough time to do everything that God wants us to do. Amen. So another excuse that I hear often is I'm too flawed. I'm too flawed. Uh, at a chapel service, Dr. John Tolson, he said this. He said, the next time you think that God can't use you, I want you to remember this. He said, Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a Romanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were considered too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Naomi Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep when Jesus asked them to be praying. Mary and Martha both worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was married five times and had a live-in boyfriend. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer. And Lazarus had been dead. So we could go on. Listen to this. First Corinthians chapter one, 26 says this for consider your calling brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And why did he do that? Look at verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So listen, if you think you're too flawed uh, for God to use you, you're in a perfect place. Right? Because God has used broken people throughout all of history. His power is made perfect in, in, in weakness. And here's another excuse that people will use. They say, uh, sharing, uh, you know, that, you know, it's, you know, it's not my gift, uh, if, uh, to share. It's not my gifting. Sharing my faith is not a gift that I have. Like that's somebody else's gift. Listen, sharing your faith with others is not a gift to be received. It's a, it's a command to be obeyed. Every Christian is called to be an everyday missionary wherever they live, work, and play. Here's a, a fourth excuse. is I just don't know how. Right? I just don't, how, don't know how to share my faith. Uh, let, me, let me say this to you. A call to proclaim is a call to prepare. You hear me? A call to proclaim is a call to prepare. If you don't know how to share your faith, then the next thing you need to do is you need to learn. You need to learn how. And by the way, if you don't know, if you don't have the resources, you don't know how, we would love to talk to you about that. We'd love to coach you through that. Uh, but a call to proclaim is a call to prepare. What excuse have you been using? So, so we've seen the authority of our king. Secondly, I want you to see the assignment of our king. Okay, let's look at verse 19. It says, go therefore and make disciples. The key word in these verses is not go. If you look on, it's not even baptized or it's not even teach. The key word is make disciples. And you're thinking, well, that's that's two words. Well, in the Greek, it's one. Okay, in the Greek, it's one. It's mathetuo. It means go make disciples. And so, if you take that, uh, you know, mathetuo, and it's actually translated and rendered as you go discipleize. Okay, having gone, make disciples. Discipleship is something that we do as we live our life. So as you go to work, right, as you go to the store, you know, as you go and work out, as you go to school, maybe as you go and run errands, uh, as you cross the street, as you put your children to bed, as you live your life, go and make disciples. You know, we love to compartmentalize life. Uh, like life is a, a filing cabinet. We have files for work. We have files for marriage. We have files for friendships. We have files for family. We have files for finances and hobbies and, you know, all kinds of different things. 
uh, we have a file called discipleship and we, and we pull that thing out for maybe one hour a week. But see, Jesus is saying something there here that I want you to hear. He's trying to make something very clear. Discipleship is not a file in the filing cabinet. Discipleship is the filing cabinet that everything else falls into. Okay? Your marriage, your job, your relationships, your family, everything. Discipleship was never meant to be just a part of life. Okay? Discipleship is all of life. As you go, make disciples, disciplize. One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite desserts is pecan pie. Um, one of our dear friends from church made, uh, made me one during the holidays and it was so, so good. Ah, but listen, if you ask me to make that and you didn't give me the ingredients or the instructions, I'm going to make you something, but it's not pecan pie. Right? If you don't give me the ingredients or you don't give me the instructions, we ain't going to get very far. Right? And the same is true for the mission to make disciples. If we don't know the ingredients or what makes a disciple or we don't have the instructions for how to make a disciple, then we aren't going to get very far. So what are the instructions? Right? What are the instructions? What are the ingredients for a disciple. Okay, let's start with what is a disciple? Well, I think Jesus gives us the most simple uh, definition in Matthew 4.19. When he calls his first disciples, he says this. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So according to Jesus, a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, that is changed by Jesus and on mission with Jesus. But what is the mission? It's to make more disciples. And how do you do that? What are the instructions? Well, that's the assignment. And Jesus in our text today tells us that this is a threefold assignment. So first off, you got to introduce people to Jesus. Right? And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be hard if you don't tell people, tell someone, uh, you know, about who Jesus is. Right? So and then we gotta we gotta share the gospel, we gotta share our testimony, we gotta share our faith. Listen, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Secondly, we identify people by with Jesus. How do we do that? We look at verse nineteen. It says, "Baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit." So what is baptism? Well, it comes from the Greek word baptizo, and it has two meanings. Two meanings. First of all, it has a literal meaning, and it means to plunge under or into something. Okay? So the word itself means immersion. That's why we believe uh, in, in baptism by immersion. Totally being immersed under the water. But there's also a symbolic meaning of baptism, which is to identify one thing with another, right? So when someone is being baptized, they are identifying themselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
So that's why when we talk about baptism, you know, it's, it's, it's a symbol, right? It doesn't have any saving power. It's, it's kind of like my wedding band. You know, my wedding band, I, I'm, I'm a happily married man. I've been married for 33 years, right? And if I were to take this wedding band off, am I still married? Right. Some of you are like, oh, my gosh, he just took his wedding. I don't know. Sacrilegious about that. But in the same way, if you're a believer and you put your faith in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, are you still a believer? Yes. Yes. Because baptism doesn't save you. It's only by grace through faith. However, let's say I wasn't married and I were to walk around with a wedding band. Right? If I were to walk around with this, does this somehow make me married if I wasn't? No, it doesn't. So in the same way, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, it doesn't matter how many times you go up there and you get wet, it doesn't save you. It's just a symbol. Right? My wedding band is a symbol that I'm off the market. Right? It's, it's, not, it's no longer just me. It's me and my bride. Right? We are one. And when I wear this thing around to show people, it's to show them how seriously I am about this relationship. Right? How serious I take this commitment. Baptism is a way of saying, hey, it's no longer me who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. Right? My old way is gone. I'm under new management. It's a new way of living that has come, and I'm serious about this relationship. I'm serious about this relationship that I've started with Jesus. So why do we get baptized? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but probably the most simple is here in Matthew 28. We see that it's a command. Okay, it's a command. It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So disciples are baptized. And so it should be our first act of obedience. Okay, so we, so we put our faith and trust in Jesus. We should go and get baptized quickly, you know, so that we, we go public with our faith, right? To let people know that we're different. John fourteen twenty one, Jesus says this. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be Loved by my father and I will love him and manifest or reveal myself to him. Did you see that? That, that, that scripture just excites me. Let me see it again. He says, I will love him and manifest, reveal myself to him. He's saying when you keep his commands, when you obey Jesus, he reveals more of himself to you. That tells us that the greater our obedience, the greater our intimacy with him. Could it be that one of the reasons that your uh, your Christian life hasn't taken off is because you're reluctant to do what he has asked you to do clearly in Scripture? So if one of those things is that you've never been biblically baptized then and, and, and you've never gone public with your faith, then maybe that's the next step today. Which leads me to the final question, who should be baptized? Well, it should be those that have repented of their sins, 
Uh, they put their faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone for their salvation. So listen, if you've ever went through some kind of ceremony and you were, you know, you got poured on or sprinkled on or, or you know, or some to that extent, and you were not a born again believer, then we would love to talk to you about that if we haven't already. Pastor Billy Graham would say this. He said, if you got baptized before you were a Christian, you don't need to get baptized again. You need to get baptized for the first time the right way. Right? So we identify people with Jesus by baptizing them. So thirdly, we instruct people with Jesus. Okay? We instruct them. Verse 20. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Teaching them, okay? I want to be very clear about what I have to say about this. The mission of God does not stop at conversion. The mission of God does not stop at conversion. Notice how Jesus says to them, he says, teach them everything that I've commanded you, you. You cannot teach what you do not know yourself. Only disciples can make disciples. But how do you teach? Well, there's two primary ways. First off, we explain his word in the simplest of form. Discipleship definition here is helping someone hear God speak and then do what he says. That's discipleship. And God's primary way of speaking to us is through teaching. And so discipleship at its core is helping someone learn how to read and study God's word on their own. Okay? But we also do this by exemplifying his word. So you set the pace. You set the example. You show that you are discipling. You know, you know what it means to live this out in your own life. So I think about a man named David Brown. A man named David Brown. He's the world's fastest completely blind runner. How does he do this? Well, he ties himself to a guy by the name of Jerome Avery. And I have a video I want to show you to illustrate this point. The reigning world champion goes in lane three alongside Jerome Avery, former international sprinter for the United States. I ran with him our first practice. Coach immediately said, you're going to run with him after me. And... You know, the rest has been history. Here you go. Running with Jerome, I don't have to worry about going out too far. All I have to focus on is just listening to him. Arm action should be exact. We should be hitting the ground at the same time. This time, Sarah Wyatt Brown gets away very, very well in shape. you see his run? Look like one person. It should look like one person running. That's it. That tracking side on camera is magic to watch because it just shows that they were running almost like one person. He said it's, it's like they're almost running like one person. I think discipleship is tethering yourself to, to someone and that cannot see. They cannot see. They don't, they don't know the path. That's what discipleship is. You're setting the pace. And you're tying yourself to them and saying, hey, follow me, right? Walk with me. Run this race with me. That is discipleship. 
We've seen the authority. We've seen the assignment. But thirdly and finally, I want to look at the assurance of our king. The assurance of our king. This is the promise that we see in verse 20. It says this. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. If you have a, if you're still reading the King, King James version, uh, it might say in there, lo, lo. This is, uh, the same word that it's used in the New Testament to call your attention to something that's really important. Okay. So it's almost like Jesus is saying, Hey, listen, this is, this is really important. What I'm trying to tell you here that what I'm about to tell you changes everything. So I want you to see three details of his assurance. Okay, first off, look at the the person, because the person of his assurance is God. He says, remember, I am with you. And I am, it's written in such a way in the Greek that it's translated as I myself am. And so he... He is making sure that you know that it's he, he, him, it's him being Jesus, the one that is with you. He is the person of God. So secondly, I want you to see the presence of his assurance is gracious. He says, I am with you. It, it doesn't say I'm close by you if you need me, right? It's, it doesn't say I'm a phone call away. He says, I am with you. I am in step with you. In fact, that promise is built into his very name. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, you see that the virgins will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. He doesn't just say I'm with you. He says I am with you to the ends of the age. Right? Look at the permanence of assurance. It's guaranteed. Hebrews 13.5 says this. God promises to never leave or forsake us. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13. It says, even if we are faithless, his, he's faithful, faithful because he cannot deny himself. So in other words, I don't care how far you run. He is still with you. No matter what you're going through, he is still with you. And so here, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I hear you. I understand now. I see the authority. I see the assignment. And and absolutely, I see the assurance. But what does all that mean for me? What does that have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you. Because every Christian is called to be an everyday missionary wherever you live, work, and play. Jesus, he was speaking to the 11 disciples. We know that. And all those that were there. But he's also speaking to all his disciples. That's you and me. But the 11 disciples, I think, they teach us something. They teach us of the types of disciples that God is going to use. So when we look at the 11 disciples in verses 16 through 18, we see a couple of things here. First off, they were positioned right. Okay, they were positioned right. 
Look at 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to, to which Jesus had directed them. So they were exactly where Jesus told them to be. Right? So let me say something about this. The, this is so important for you to remember, young people. The greatest ability is availability. The greatest ability is availability. If you can, I don't care how, if you're the most talented, you know, individual in the world, it, it means nothing if you're not available. Many people, I think, get hung up on, you know, they don't start serving, they don't start fulfilling the mission because they're stuck on where exactly they're supposed to be and what capacity they're supposed to serve. Don't wait on some call. Uh, you know, some call to a certain ministry or, or place of service. Just be available. Give God your yes. John MacArthur, he writes this. Because they were there, they met Christ. Because they were there, they got commissioned. Because they were there, they received the Lord's promises of his continual presence and power as they ministered to the world. It all started with being available. Are you available? Are you postured right? Are you positioned right? Well, they were postured right. Look at verse 17. It says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Well, the Greek word there means to kneel down. It's, it's actual posture to worship. Listen. If you're still wondering if you've had a true life transforming encounter with the risen Savior, it always leads to a rhythm of worship and mission. Always. Worship is what they're doing. Mission is what they're about to do. They were positioned right. They were postured right. And these are the kinds of disciples that Jesus uses to fulfill his mission. But there's just one more thing I want to show you and we'll be done. Verse 17, it says, When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. It's kind of thrown in there and it's easy to miss. But I think a lot of us can relate to that. Have you ever doubted? Like me, you've, de- you've maybe devoured his... You've doubted his provision. You've doubted his plan. Maybe you've doubted his presence. And if you've doubted, or if you have doubts, it could have left you maybe feeling distant. It could have maybe helped, you know, left you feeling unworthy to be used by him. But here's the good news this morning. Your doubt does not disqualify you. It does not disqualify you from the mission of God. So if you have walked in here this morning and, you, and you, with your doubts, once you look at one more thing, look at verse 18. He says, Jesus came. And some versions say Jesus came near and said to them. Jesus is near and he's always willing to have a conversation. So if you're doubting, I want you to look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. It says this, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. 
The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which surpasses all of your questions, which surpasses all of your doubts, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So if you struggle with doubt, pray. Pray. If you want to be used by God, position yourself right. If you want to be used by God, posture yourself right. And from there, God will give you the power to fulfill his mission. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and make their way back up. So here's the invitation this morning. It's very simple. If you are a believer, then go. And as you go, disciplize. Because every Christian is called to be an everyday missionary wherever you live, work, and play. And if you're not a believer, then come. Then go. Come and put your faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone for your salvation. And then go tell anyone and everyone the good news of Jesus. So we're going to pray. And then we're going to sing one more song that reminds us uh, that all Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection and his eternal gift of salvation. And in this In that, it gives us the courage to go and make disciples. And this this song, during this time, it's a time of response. So if you feel the Lord stirring something inside of you, you feel like you want to talk to somebody about it, there are people in the prayer room to your right. Uh, I'll be down front. Or we have, you can call us at any time. But we'd love to talk to you. That last song, it's during the time of response. Let's pray. Father, your word has been given to your people. And Father, we thank you that you've sent your son to seek and save the lost. And we see that your command is to do the same. Your word tells us and reveals to us that our obedience leads to greater intimacy. And so, Father, would you let the Holy Spirit work in us, let it move in us, so that we would change the lives of others by telling them about you. Allow them to put their faith and trust in Jesus. Amen. So if you have something to say, you have something you'd like to pray with about, you can come over to the prayer room. I'll be down front. God bless you guys.